Let me ask before we get started. Do we have any uh, any Mumford and Sons fans here? If you're if you're not, I got, I got a few people raising their hands. If you're not, then you should be. Um, that's your lesson for the week: is to go buy a CD. There's only one, so it should be easy to find. Uh, but but from their song "Sigh No More," and now my family knows what I've been singing this all morning. Uh, love, and I'm not going to sing it for you. Love, it will not betray you, dismay or enslave you. It will set you free. Be more like the man you were made to be. There is a design, an alignment, a cry of my heart to see the beauty of love as it was made to be. Uh, my premise this morning for us is, as we look at this passage is that all of us, to one degree or another, uh, put ourselves under authorities that betray us and dismay us and enslave us. Uh, if, if you put yourself under the authority of your appearance, then you're going to devote your life and your energy and your money and your time to that, to looking good, to being beautiful. If you put yourself under the authority of success, then you're going to devote that same energy, effort, money toward being successful so much that it even begins to control you. And what I hope you see, what I want you to see this morning is that there is an authority we should put ourselves under. But there's only one authority that won't betray, dismay, or enslave you, that will indeed set you free, and that's the authority of the one who made you. Uh, the, the authority of the king. The authority of the king who is himself love. Uh, and so as we look at our text this morning, I want you to see the identity of this king, uh, the mission of this king, the message of this king, and the call of this thing. And then I want, you to, then I want to invite you uh, to put yourself under his loving authority. So, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed, clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Well, Mark just jumps right into it, doesn't he? Uh, he begins his gospel by pointing us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right off the bat, you see uh, that in Mark's mind, Jesus is no ordinary person. Jesus is the Christ. Uh, now, Christ is this Greek word meaning an anointed royal figure. Uh, the Hebrew for Christ is, is Messiah. Uh, this is the coming one, the promised one, the one who would save God's people, the one who would deliver Israel even. But not only is he the Christ, Mark says he's the very Son of God. The Son of God. Mark, are, are you saying, well, Mark may be saying more than you think. Uh, because uh, look at what he does here. He quotes from the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And then the next thing we read is, John appeared. So here's John, who Mark is identifying as the voice of this one, crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. But then who shows up? Well, Jesus shows up and Mark is saying, look, John is the voice shouting, prepare the way for the Lord. And here's the Lord. Here's Jesus. Here's God in the flesh. Here's God Almighty Himself. The King has come. Now, um, I don't know what you think about who Jesus is. Now, often you'll hear it said, well, the Bible never really says that Jesus is God. 
I'm ready to believe that Jesus is a good religious teacher, but I don't know that I'm ready to believe that he's God. That's too much. And yet, uh, Mark isn't holding his cards very close, is he? he? He's laying them out there for us to see. He wants you and I to understand from the very beginning of his gospel that he's not just giving religious advice. He's not just writing uh, the autobiography of some religious figure. He wants you to know that the person he's writing about is the king. See, the gospel writers, if you take them seriously, they don't really leave you this, well, he's just a good teacher option. Mark would say, no, no, he's much more than that. He's the king, I tell you. And the question for you is, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with what Mark tells us about the identity of Jesus Christ? Uh, Mark continues his narrative and he reinforces this identity of Jesus and he begins to point us uh, to the mission of Jesus as well. Uh, In verse 9, he paints this picture here of the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, we kind of read through that and go, Well, that's interesting. But that's a pretty big scene when you think about it. Because right here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark is, is even upping the ante a little bit. Uh, not only is he pointing us to the divinity of Christ, he's pointing us here to the very uh, mysterious reality of the Trinity. Yet here we have picture Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all engaged in this mission that Jesus uh, has been sent on. Now, we're putting a lot of cards on the table. Uh, The Trinity, uh, one God in three persons, uh, forever existing in this relationship of, of life and love and beauty and knowledge for all eternity. Now, the Trinity, a, it's a difficult doctrine, and you might say, what, does it really matter? I mean, what difference does that, that's just hard to understand. What does that matter? C.S. Lewis asked that same question, uh, and he said this, it matters more than anything else in the world. It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Joy, power, peace, eternal life are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, which we're going to reference several times this morning, and, and I would encourage you to read, says this, Why does Lewis choose to dwell on this image of the dance when he's talking about the Trinity? A self-centered life is a stationary life. It's static, not dynamic. A self-centered person wants to be the center around which everything else orbits. I might help people. I might have friends. I might fall in love. As long as there's no compromise of my individual interest or whatever meets my needs. I might even give to the poor. As long as it makes me feel good about myself and doesn't hinder my lifestyle too much. Self-centeredness makes everything else a means to, to an end. And that end, that non-negotiable, is whatever I want and whatever I like. My interest over theirs. I'll have fun with people. 
I'll talk with people, but in the end, everything orbits around me. If everyone is saying, no, you orbit around me, what happens? Picture five people, ten people, a hundred people on a stage together, and every one of them wants to be the center. You want to come up and try that? No, we won't do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> every one of them wants to be the center. They all just stand there and say to the others, you move around me. And nobody gets anywhere. The dance becomes hazardous, if not impossible. The Trinity is utterly different. Instead of self-centeredness, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are characterized in their very essence by mutually self-giving love. No person in the Trinity insists that the others revolve around Him. Rather, each of them voluntarily circles and orbits around the others. If this is ultimate reality, if this is what the God who made the universe is like, then this truth bristles and explodes with life-shaping, glorious implications for us. If this world was made by a triune God, relationships of love are what life is really about. If this world is created by a triune God, then relationships of love are what life is really about. Uh, if, if, there's, if God is not a trinity, then there is no self-giving love at the center of reality. If atheistic evolution is true and there is no God, then love is nothing more than a chemical reaction. It's nothing more than chemistry. But if a triune God who's always existed in a relationship is at the center of reality, then wouldn't it make sense that there is a design, an alignment, a cry of my heart to see the beauty of love as it was made to be. Wouldn't that longing make sense? Uh, Keller goes on to ask, well, why did he create us? There's only one answer. He must have created us not to get joy, but to give it. He must have created us to invite us into the dance to say, if you glorify me, if you center your entire life on me, if you find me beautiful for who I am in myself, then you will step into the dance, which is what you're made for. You're made not just to believe in me or to be spiritual in some general way, not just to pray and get a bit of inspiration when things are tough. You're made to center everything in your life on me, to think of everything in terms of your relationship to me, to serve me unconditionally. That's where you'll find your joy. That's what the dance is about. That's what you're built for. Let me ask you something. Do you ever stop and ask yourself that question? What am I built for? What am I designed for? Do you ever slow down long enough to say, why am I even here? Is it just to play Angry Birds? Uh, what, you know, what's, what's, my, what's my purpose uh, in life. Uh, the answer of the Bible is that you're made to know God and to love God and to enjoy God and to worship God and, and that your entire life, your entire being is built to center on Him, to know His love, to enter into the dance. But, but, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, and you'll notice, if you, if you go back and read through Mark 1, there's lots of shadows of Genesis 1 
in, in Mark 1, you'll know that in the creation story, Adam and Eve are made to enter this dance, and yet they don't. Another figure shows up and tempts them, draws them away from the dance, invites them to, to center all their thoughts and works and efforts on themselves. And everything falls apart. And we still live in this falling apart, uh, self-centered reality. Uh, to quote from King's Cross again, we've gone the way of self-centeredness and self-centeredness destroys relationships. There's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. I thought that was a great line. There's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. How am I feeling? How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I be being treated justly? Why do we have wars? Why are our relationships constantly exploding? It's the darkness of self-centeredness. We've decided to be our own center, our own king, and everything falls apart. We've left the dance. We've left the dance. And yet here is Jesus on this mission to draw us back in to the dance, to bring us back in. Uh, notice in verse 8 here, we're already beginning to get a sense of what Jesus' mission is. John says, um, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 9, the very next verse, all right, Jesus is going to baptize you with, with the Holy Spirit. I baptized you with water. The very next verse, verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Alright, if Jesus is who he says he is, why is he doing this? Because it says a few verses earlier that this was a baptism of repentance. What does Jesus need to repent of? Why is he coming and being baptized by John? What Jesus is doing is he is identifying with the very sins of his people. He's showing you what is to come. Isaiah 53 reads this way. Surely he, was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus is saying even at the very beginning of his ministry, I'm going to be treated like the one who needs to repent. I'm going to be treated like the one who deserves the judgment of God for you. I'm taking the very wrath of the Father on myself for you. Because I love you. Because the Father loves you. Because we want to draw you back in to the dance. We want to bring you back in to the very life you were created to know. Well, the next thing we read in the text uh, is that Jesus is now tempted by Satan. And again, we have these echoes of Genesis. You remember Adam and Eve tempted by Satan. And here's Jesus being tempted by Satan himself. 
And yet Jesus resists the temptation. He's been without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And here is Satan saying, bow down, worship me. This worked with Adam and Eve. This is going to work with you too. I'm going to lead you astray. And Jesus says, you can read this in Matthew chapter 4, be gone, get out of my face. Satan, get out of here. You shall serve the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. See, Jesus comes as the second Adam. He comes to do it right. He comes to undo the wrong that has been done. He comes to obey the Father perfectly and then to give His life on the cross. Now, a quick point of application here. I don't know what your impression of Christianity might be, uh, but Jesus hasn't come to give you moral lessons or to draw you into religion. He hasn't come so that you can jump through hoops. Uh, he hasn't come to give you rules to keep. He's come to give away his life so that you can have life. And we're beginning to see it even here in the very beginning of Mark's gospel. Well, you can probably see all our points are beginning to blur as, as, as they will at times. Um, we see Jesus' identity as the Son of God. We see His mission is to come and lay down His life to pull you back into the dance. And then his, here's His message. His message is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What's a gospel? A gospel was a word that was used even in those days. And it had the idea of this good news that is being brought to you about a life-altering event. Good news that when you hear it will change everything about your life and about who you are. So in light of that, gospel is good news. Think about how this is worded. Repent and believe. I think it's important that we hear both of those words. Repent and believe. Uh, some of us think of Christianity and all we hear is repent. You know, we think of the, the guy on the, on the street corner yelling, repent, the end of the world is coming, repent. And all we think of when we hear that is, okay, Christianity is about getting your life together and living right and trying harder and reading my Bible and to be sorry for all the bad stuff. Is there any good news in that? That's not good news. It's like, are you kidding me? i got to do what? There's no good news there. But on the other hand, others of us here simply believe as if all I needed to do is to give some sort of intellectual assent to who Jesus is. To kind of cast my vote for Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you're my Savior. Now I'm going to go on and do whatever I want to do with my life. But there's no good news in that either because you're still holding on to your life. And it's, it's your life. It's my life. That's the problem to begin with. I've been trying to, to orbit around myself and they get you to orbit around me as well. And if I don't quit orbiting around myself, I'm going to destroy myself and cause everybody in my path a great deal of pain as well. So the message, the message is repent. You've been doing it all wrong. Admit that. Acknowledge that. Realize you're not made for that. Confess that. 
resolve to follow the king, but the message is also believe. Believe the gospel. Believe that the king has come. Believe that the king has come to lay down his life for you, to rescue you, to pull you back into the dance, to change you. And then rest in that. Believe that. Rest your hopes for being accepted by God in the sacrifice of the King. Not in the strength of your repentance, although you are called to repent, but rest your hope in the King. Well, we've got an identity, we got a mission, we got a message, and then there's this call. Uh, as Jesus sets out on this mission, a mission that's going to end with him dying and then his resurrection, he calls these men we see here to be his disciples. And what's he say to them? He says, follow me. Come on. Leave your family. I know you love your family, but come on. Uh, leave your work. I know you like your job, but come on. Follow me. I mean, do you think, Mark is very brief in his presentation of, of, of everything, really, but do you think they really had any idea what they were getting into that day? Do you think they knew that Jesus was going to die? Do you think they knew that most of them were going to wind up dying because of their faith in this guy who had just showed up and said, follow me? It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense that they followed him, does it? If you, if you look at the stories of the gospel, why, why are they following him unless he really is who he says he is? Unless he really did speak with this authority, unlike the scribes who were always just quoting other people. Unless he just spoke with authority straight from God. And they saw that. And they recognized this. They saw his authority over demons. They saw his authority over sickness. They heard his authoritative teaching. See, it makes no sense to follow this man to his death and to your death unless he's the one. Unless he's who he says he is. Unless he really rose from the dead. Do you realize that if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, uh, then this, the disciples died for something that they knew wasn't true, which is just absurd. But if he did rise, then what they did and what they continued to do to give up their very lives to proclaim the gospel, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Now, some of you this morning, you might be wrestling with the identity of Jesus still. And I'd encourage you to continue to wrestle. You might be wrestling with, uh, can't, how do I repent? What does it mean to believe? And I'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, some of you, though, you're saying, I, you know, I, I believe this. Uh, I'm, I'm resting in this as best as I understand it. Uh, but now what you're really wrestling with is this aspect, this call to follow Him. And to keep following Him. Because you had no idea that following him was going to lead you here, to this place in your life. If you'll uh, permit me one last story from, from King's Cross. Uh, there's a story told in the book. It's actually taken from a book by George MacDonald. 
Uh, it's a children's story called The Princes and the Goblin. Uh, and in the story of The Princes and the Goblin, there's the story of an eight-year-old girl named Irene who stumbles up into the attic in her house and she meets her fairy godmother there. And she always loves to go and to talk to her fairy godmother, but she's not always there. Some days, more often than not even, her fairy godmother is not there when she goes up. And so one day the fairy godmother uh, says to her, gives to her, she's like, look, I'm going to give you a ring, and there's a thread around the ring which you can't see, which you're going to be able to feel, and I want you to keep this. And anytime you feel like you're in danger, I want you to take the ring off, and I want you to put it under your pillow, and then I want you to follow the thread, feel your way along the thread. And Irene says, and it'll lead me to you, right? And the fairy godmother says, yes, it will lead you to me, but you may not realize it at the time. And it's going to take you in some out-of-the-way places, and it's going to seem like you're going in absolutely the wrong direction, but I want you to keep following the thread to see where it winds up. Uh, you'll get bloody, you'll be in dead ends, but keep following the thread. Well, one day, uh, goblins get into the house. And Irene can hear the goblins in the hallway, and so she puts the ring under the pillow and she starts following the thread and all is good except the thread begins to lead her out of the house and into the goblin's cave and as she's going deeper into the goblin's cave still following the thread she comes with this big pile of stones and there's no way through and she's beginning to panic really and so she turns and she tries to start following the thread backwards but there's no thread when you try to follow it backwards it just disappears and so she just sits and cries for a minute and she finally realizes there's nowhere for me to go but to keep going forward. And so she plows through all those stones, cuts her hands up, gets through the other side, and she finds on the other side this friend who's been missing for some time. And the friend says, how did you get here? And she says, my fairy godmother brought me here. And the friend says, let's get out of here. Let's go back up. And Irene says, no I've got to follow the thread. We've got to go deeper into the cave. And the friend says, you're crazy. Why would we do that? And Irene says, I know. But this is the way my thread goes. And I've got to follow it. When Jesus called his disciples, he was calling them to follow the thread. When Jesus calls you to be his disciple... He's calling you to follow the thread. Uh, after telling the story, Keller says, you may say, that sounds pretty hard, and you're right. How can we possibly follow the thread? It's simple but profound. Jesus himself does absolutely everything he's calling us to do. When he called James and John to leave their father in the boat, he had already left his father's throne. And later, he's going to be ripped from his father's presence on the cross. It's going to look as if your thread is taking you into dead ends, places where you'll get bloody, where the only way to follow the thread looks like it could crush you. But don't try to go backward. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. 
Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you. He followed his thread to the cross so you can follow yours into his arms. He followed his thread to the cross so you can follow yours into his arms. Do you know that kind of love? Are the authorities in your life the authorities that beckon you to follow them, do they love you like that? Will they give up their life for you? Will alcohol or success or porn or popularity or money, will any of them lay down their life for you? Does following them make you feel free? Does following them lift off your burdens? Or do you feel stuck? Trapped? Driven? Out of control? Thirsty? Desperate? Can I suggest to you this morning that perhaps you're placing your life under the wrong authority? And suggest that you consider placing your life under the loving authority of the king who made you and gave himself for you, the king who loves you. Love, it will not betray you, dismay, or enslave you. It will set you free. Be more like the man or the woman you were made to be. Let me pray for us. God, would you cause us to heed this call, to believe this message, and to put ourselves under the loving authority of the King who died for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.